Hey everybody, question, what does Robin Ford have in common with session legend Michael Thompson, with other solo artists such as Alan Hines and Wayne Krantz, with Mark Lettieri of Snarky Puppy, with James Valentine of Maroon 5? Well, aside from the fact that they're all killer guitarists, they have another thing in common, and that's that they all use the Vertex Boost. This episode of No Guitar is Safe with Robin Ford is brought to you by the Vertex Boost, which you can check out at vertexeffects.com. You can even see videos of Robin and some of these other cats demoing the pedal there. The first thing they love about this pedal is that it has a killer buffer on it. Even when it's not on, this pedal buffers your signal so you can run through a bunch of other pedals. You can run through an entire pedal board and you still get that clear sound, much like a cable going straight into the amp. In other words, it's like running through nothing at all, the Vertex Boost. Kick it in, turn on that LED, and you have plenty of dB of clear, clean gain that you can adjust with the level knob. Also, you can adjust it using a volume pedal. You just plug any volume pedal, even a crappy one, into the expression in jack. It's 100% analog. You're just using this volume pedal as an expression pedal to go from zero to wide open. That's great, because that means you don't have to plug your guitar into the volume pedal. You plug your guitar straight into the boost, thereby avoiding the potential impedance buildup that can add some tone suck. And we don't want tone suck. So skip the volume pedal, plug straight into the boost. Check out the Vertex Boost at vertexeffects.com. Enter the code ROBIN, R-O-B-B-E-N, and you'll get 20% off and free shipping. The pedal has a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, and it also has a lifetime warranty. And you can feel good about this pedal because it's handmade in the U.S. of A. Vertexeffects.com. All right, let's go hang out with Robin Ford and maybe even plug in a couple guitars. No guitar is safe. It's funny how certain really vivid memories make you remember exactly where you were standing when they occurred. I remember a dirty carpet. I remember a telephone and an answering machine that was shared by four roommates. I remember a crazy house with a drum set in the living room. I was walking into the kitchen when suddenly I heard this guitar that sounded so clear, so present, so three-dimensional, so tasty, with so much space around it. Yeah, I remember that moment. I think that was my first year of college. I stayed right there in the doorway and waited till the DJ told me at the end of the song that it was Robin Ford. Of course, you're hearing Robin Ford right now. This is his new album, Into the Sun. Every song on this album, no surprise, is slamming and super tasteful. Has a lot of great guest artists on it too. This song right now you're hearing is called High Heels and Throwing Things, and it has Warren Haynes on there. But you'll also hear a bunch of other great musicians, such as the wonderful singer ZZ Ward. So close to you, you're the very breath of me. Your shining light, like a rain, like peace, like the moon at night. Oh man, Robin, you're turning me into a DJ here. I gotta play a couple of other little snippets before we get this interview started because there's such cool stuff on this album. Again, the album is called Into the Sun. Here's a song that has the great slide guitarist Sonny Landreth on it. 
And what you started. Check out the tune Justified, and you're going to hear Keb Mo singing and Robert Randolph on the Sacred Steel guitar. If you're in the Nashville area in January, you got to go to the High Watt to see Robin Ford. He's doing a residency out there three weeks in a row, January 20th, January 27th, and February 3rd. Catch Robin at the High Watt. If you're new to this show, thank you for checking it out. My name is Jude Gold. This is No Guitar is Safe, episode 17 with Robin Ford. Thank you, Guitar Player Magazine, for helping me put this out. Of course, any and all previous episodes are up there for free. You can go check them out. Everyone from Joe Satriani and Brad Gillis to Mike Scott from Prince to Frank Gambali from Chick Corea to James Valentine from Maroon 5 to Billy Sheehan, other players, Greg Howe, Nita Strauss, too many to remember, Oz Noy. Go check them all out. We have a Facebook page too, No Guitar Is Safe Facebook page. Love those vocals. And in case you're wondering the song that stopped me in my tracks all those years ago, well, it was a famous Robin Ford song called Talk to Your Daughter. Yeah, what a fantastic reimagining of that great blues classic. Thank you, Robin. That's, of course, Talk to Your Daughter. That song comes up in our interview a couple of times. You know, we talk about Robin's version of it. So at the very, very end of the interview, I'm going to play you some more of it. I'm going to play a bit of that tune from the top. Of course, that's going to be a little while from now because we have a long interview for you deep, long interview with this great guitarist, Robin Ford. He's going to talk about everything from creating his new album, Into the Sun, to his first influences, to playing with Miles Davis and Joni Mitchell, to what drives him as a guitar player and as a songwriter and how they're kind of the same thing. I hope you really enjoy this. We're going to now hop in the guitar copter and we're going to head over to Blue Suede Studios in the Sherman Oaks area of Southern California. Shane Soloski owns this studio and it's a great room with a giant board. Same board that Supertramp used for breakfast in America, if you can believe that. And we're going to hang out with Robin Ford and we're going to plug Robin into this beat up old super amp that makes it almost all the way through the interview. At the very last last bit, I switch him over to a, a baseman. Thanks, Robin, so much for doing this and for being so generous with your time and your stories and your inspiration. All right, let's head over to Blue Suede Studios. Thank you. 
Love that tune. I thought we were going to go into the changes. It's got some beautiful changes on there. Rose of Sharon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, that's the opening vamp to Rose of Sharon from uh, the End of the Sun record. And, uh, and you got a beautiful bridge on there, too. It's like... Mm-hmm. Love to, can you play that for us, dude? Just a series a little... of chords? Sure. Um, yeah. I'm playing a C minor yeah. 11 to a D minor 11. B flat 6 to C6. A flat 6 to A minor 7. And then a B flat 6. B minor 7. C9. E flat major 7. D sus. Beautiful. Can you play just one time through? Just, uh... That's a great lick, the main groove there, too. It's yeah. Fun, fun to play, involves your fingers. That's one of those things that just, you know, happens sitting down, picking up the acoustic guitar, and I just kind of played it, you know. I, I wanted to do something that that had open strings, you know, and had sort of a an old, you know, like it hinted yeah. of old things, and still, you know, had some kind of... Uh, you know, more modern sophistication to it, you know? Yeah. Where did you write that? I picture you... On my couch. Sitting, yeah, like in Ventura County near the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> strumming that out. Well, I live in Ojai. You live in one of the most relaxing areas of the... It's pretty chill, I must admit. <laughs> and, yeah, it's cool. And then you just fire off into L.A. when you need to and around the world. Oh, uh, well, there's back. a lot of travel, that's for sure. So, and you know, this new album is so great and you, all the songs, they seem like they're all like three and a half minutes or some of them have fade outs. Uh-huh. Is that a new thing for you to have them? Fade so, outs? Some of the other couple of... Well, I mean, fade yeah. outs to me are like, that's been more yeah. than norm. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, it seems like it could have gone on for five or six minutes or something. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, I tell you, man, you know, it's for me, like what I've been working on for the last 20 odd years has been writing and producing great songs. You know, I say great, you know, because whether or not they're great is up to somebody else, you know. But what I think are really good songs, you know, writing them. And when I say producing, I mean sort of crafting it, you know, getting the right people together, you know, and the right instrumentation and all that entails a final product, you know. Like, what's, what's here in the end? And for me, the guitar playing happens live. There is guitar yeah. playing on the record for sure, you know, quite a bit, I would say. Definitely. But it's um, it's more about producing a really good, you know, performance, a really good song, a really good performance and production of that song. And the playing, you know, is, or I should say the improvising, you know, the soloing is, it's just a part of it. It's a part of the work, Absolutely. you know. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so much space in what you're playing and on all your tunes. And I appreciate the production that you brought to blues or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. 
I'll tell you that the first time I heard you, I think was tea time for Eric or, <laughs> but that it was really later. I was, I remember it's one of those moments where I remember where I was standing, right? There's a radio station in the Bay area that used to play a lot of cool shit. Mm-hmm. And the song comes on. It was talk to your daughter. It was talk oh. to your daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And the tone was incredible. And the three dimensional mm-hmm. presentation, it was blues, but it was, it was mm-hmm. using the full range of my speakers, the way that it was mixed. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. It's big. That record is surprisingly big sounding, you know? Same with your current record. Mm-hmm. And well, I'm thanks. always curious, you make the guitar sit so, it has such a nice space in the mix. I mean, mm-hmm. a casual observer would say, oh, that's slap back or a little reverb. But what's the real story? How do you uh, mix your guitar and how much of the slap back is coming from your amp and how much of it maybe is added in the mix? Oh, you know, I have acquiesced to the wisdom of recording dry, you know? You really don't want any effects. I occasionally will, but there'll be like a very short delay. Really, that's it. I I might use a a short delay while recording and print it, you know, live. You mean into the amp or? Running through the amp, my pedal board, short delay, you know? Yeah. Uh, Just because it's kind of a habit and it's kind of my sound, you know? I almost I do. I always have that short delay on, just yeah. to make the just give it a little bit wider. You know that yeah. tone. It's a real short delay, and so it just just makes that single note just a little bit bigger. That's how I hear it. So you know, I record, pr- but generally that comes after the fact. You know, and you use like a plug-in or engineer's discretion, or do you have a particular after-the-fact sort of preference? Well, you know, you work with people for a while. You know, like it's not a different engineer every time. It's often the same engineer, right? right? Mm -hmm. So you've developed some things and, you know, you, he already knows, you know, like what I like, you know, it's, it's just kind of up and we don't even have to talk about it. Sweet. You're you're not like Jimmy Page, who apparently would fire the engineer every time to prove that the sound was coming from him at each record. Oh, I see. He was the producer. Well, God bless him. So, but before I forget... What is your current slapback pedal or little echo that you would run into the front of an amp? I, I use the Strymon Timeline. That's got a bunch of different sounds in it. It does, and I really need to learn more of them. You know, I basically have a short delay and a long delay, and that's it. And I kind of fooled around a little bit with, with some settings. I did a, a couple of nights up in, in Oakland with Billy Payne mm-hmm. uh, from Little Feet, the keyboard player who... yeah. You know, he, he's an orchestra unto himself. And my nephew actually was playing drums with Little Feet for the last four or five years. And he would play with Billy, too. So I joined the two of them. And I thought, this is an opportunity for me to spread out a little bit. You know, maybe bring something new to, for me, new, yeah. you know, to Billy's music. Sweet. So I found a few things that I kind of liked. But I still am just so, you know, undereducated about uh, effects. Well, I mean, it's working, whatever you got going on. <laughs> well, what what's, what is your plan. current um, pedal board? What are you uh, running on it? Yeah, I, I have the Strymon Timeline Delay. I use the uh, TC uh, Electronics Hall of Fame Reverb. I use uh, the Zen Drive for my overdrive. And uh, I also use the Vertex Effects Boost. Yes. And, um, you know, beyond that, I've got a tuner in line nice. and uh, a power supply. 
you like, know, for the pedals. Like a, I don't know, yeah. Voodoo Labs or something? Or I, it <laughs> is something like that. I, and I Dunlop, one of those. It might be Voodoo, but I, I can't oh. say for sure off the top of my head. See, that's how uneducated, yeah. you know. Now, love to just knock out some of the gear talk cause I'm, sure. since we're talking about it. But yeah. um, you're so you, if you're running straight into say what your amp of choice is it the Dumble? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Overdrive Special? What yes, you, I, I've made every record I've ever made yeah. on one particular Dumble Overdrive Special with yeah. uh, you know a Dumble two by twelve cabinet, and that's generally the amp that people see me playing on stage. Yeah. Talk to your daughter. Every yeah. record I've ever made has been that amplifier. Yeah. When did you come into contact with that amp? Well, I I bought that amp in maybe early 83, mm-hmm. 82 or 3, right in there. Where did you find it? Did someone, someone say, oh, hey. I ordered it. So you had tried them before? Or? Well, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember a guy named Andy Brower. Yeah. He used to have Andy Brower's Studio Instrument Rentals. Uh, Andy had one uh, in the early 80s. Like, I met Andy in 80, 81. Right around there. And um, he had a Dumbo uh, Overdrive Special head. And I played through it, and I'm like, damn, I love this. And so I used to rent it from him for gigs. This was during a period of time when I was broke. And uh, it was a very hard time, actually. Uh, So, But I found this amp, and I'm like, holy mackerel. So I would rent the amp head from him, and I don't remember what speaker cabinet I would plug mm-hmm. it into and that's and I would play my gigs on that and then finally I just went I gotta have one of these this is definitely the amp for me and I met Alexander Dumble I ordered an amplifier from him and and bought my first uh, overdrive special I have two I have to ask you how much was it back then because we all know twelve hundred dollars that's that's Maybe like 13. that's like a nickel compared to now which is what yes, are they I going know. for what if that amp those amps are 40 grand now or something? Oh, they're anywhere from... 50? Yeah, 30, 40, 50 to 100. I mean, depending on who, yeah. who's buying. Yeah, and Carlos Santana's <laughs> been probably upping the price by buying like a bunch of them. <laughs> well, a know. bunch of people have done that. John Mayer, you know, bought a yeah, bunch of them. right. But just a footnote, which you may or may not be aware of, but I'm kind yeah. of proud of it. And I yeah. didn't know this uh, right off the bat. I don't remember Alexander and I talking about this when we first got together. But he told yeah. me, I think a few years later that he used to see me play with uh, the Charles Ford Band, my brothers sure. and I, uh, up in Ben Lomond, Santa Cruz area, you know, off Highway 9 in the mountains there. And uh, in those days, I was playing through a piggyback basement, um, you mm-hmm. know, like 2x12 cabinet and, yeah. and the blackface, you know, Fender basement head. And he got the idea for the Overdrive special, hearing me play through the Fender basement. Yes, I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so basically, the Overdrive Special is a Fender Basement schematic, and then completely dumbbellized beyond that, you know. Secret sauce. Mm-hmm. Now, so I'm just fascinated. So do you run it generally clean and use the Zen Drive to push it, the dirt in or something? I run it generally clean, and then just use the Dumble Boost uh, to get louder, you know, because I really yeah. like a clean sound. And there will be a few things that I will use the Zen Drive for. Uh-huh. And, of course, the Dumble has an overdrive station, which that, I use that to record. You know, I don't use the Zen Drive when I record. I use the Dumble. Uh-huh. But the problem with the Dumble amplifier uh, is if, if you're not going through the Dumble later, if you're not using uh, his effects loop, the overdrive just freaks out the pedals. They just sound terrible. Yeah. They distort. It's just awful, you know. So I can't use the, the overdrive with a pedal board. That's right. why I used to use a rack, you know. Uh-huh. I would have a yeah. reverb and a TC Electronics 2290, and 
but I just got tired of carrying that stuff around and having it get banged up and yeah. I wanted something simpler. So I finally became comfortable with the with a pedal board. It took me a long time. Uh, but the and the reason mainly was that, you know, as soon as you plugged the pedal board into the dumbbell amp, it just just, they to weren't go. happy together, you know. Right. And somehow we figured it out. And so how does the Vertex Boost fit into your... Well, thing? the Vertex was just a mind blower for me, you know. Because um, as soon as you, you know, I, I plug into the dumbbell amplifier, it sounds like the dumbbell amplifier. Okay. Right. Take a cable, run it into a pedal board, plug into the pedal board. The sound of the amp has changed. It's not necessarily worse or right. better, you know. It's different. I put the Vertex Boost in there. There's no difference between the sound of plugging into the pedal board and plugging into the amplifier. Nice. And that, to me, was just a friggin' revelation, pardon my French, you know? Oh, that wasn't French. We can, we can speak <laughs> complete French here if you want. But uh, I, I will say that I have found that there's a thing in the Vertex Boost, once I kick it in, there's a certain thing that happens in the high end that you don't hear when you're up close. But when you get a distance from the amplifier, you hear this thing in the high end that can be a little hard on the ear. And uh, this was pointed out to me by, uh, by the, a British friend, uh, Simon Law. He works for uh, Matt Schofield, great uh, English blues guitar player. And he's worked for me as well, Simon Law, very good uh, sound man. Um, he pointed this out to me, and I'm like, really? You know, I didn't know. And sure enough, you know, it was true. So I now, I, I plug in to the Vertex Boost, but mm. I don't turn it on. <laughs> it does have a fantastic buffer circuit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, you know. This is the yeah. real McCoy. Yeah. And um, I use it, you know, I use it in this way, but um, it uh, it's still really yeah. important to me, you know. So I, I I do endorse this pedal. It is nice to use with a volume pedal and when it's engaged too, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, you're not actually going through your volume pedal. It's just like an expression pedal. Yeah. Which well, I Mike do. Landau does that, right? I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not clear on his whole rig. <laughs> right. It changes anyway. Got some fairy dust in there too. No so, fairy dust. Uh, you're right. It's, it's from it's his electronics. fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's all in the fingers. I mean, I've seen you play through every amp and you always have the same wonderful Basically. tone. I mean, well, thank you. Yeah. And it's a pocket rhythm is such an important <clears throat> factor in tone, mm-hmm. rhythm and dynamics, right? Yes. If you have a great phrasing and sensitivity mm-hmm. that's what i think of when i think of how you play and thank you yeah. yeah uh you know for me it's about um making music at all times like that's the yeah. thinking the origin of anything that i do has everything to do with what's around me what's going on around me you know and so the source is always you know i don't I mean you know everybody's got an ego but it's not ego inspired you know i'm not trying to prove anything because i'm just not it happens too quickly you know it's just it's a musical reaction i want to how can you know whatever just started how can this be like the best musical thing that could possibly be right now you know so that's always my thinking and you know i learned this the hard way to some extent because i was around people who were really good at it and i was really bad at it and i had to (laughs) You know, which was the LA Express, my period with Joni Mitchell. You know, I was 22, my first tour with them. I didn't know anything about this kind of thinking. I was all about blowing, you know, playing fast and jazz chords, you know. So these people were like, no, 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 no. You know, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Think about what you're doing, you know, like, 
So I started learning, I began, you know, learning about, to me, what it was to really be fully musical, you know, and have everything that you do always be about the music, which, which could mean that you actually leave the room, ultimately. You know what I mean? Because right. you don't fit. That's but a, that's yeah. the best musical choice, is that you leave. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? It's exactly. that kind of thinking. Yeah. It's could that complete of a picture. That's full. That's complete right there. If you com- take yourself completely out of it, yeah. that would be difficult for most musicians. <laughs> well, because they don't know what to do. You know, you need the experience. I play with, you know, I've, I've been really happy over the last several years to play with more and more guitar players than uh-huh. I have in the past. Used to just yeah. be never played with guitar players, you know. It was always keyboard players, and then it became a trio. <laughs> but um, I enjoy playing with other guitar players. Most guitar players have been doing one thing since the beginning, and they've done that their whole life, you know. I've had so many different experiences, and that's what's allowed me to realize that there are options, you know. Yeah. And most people just don't get to go to that school, you know. I mean, it was the yeah. school of, you know, I say hard knocks for lack of a better. It was great, you know, but experience. You have to have the experience of realizing, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need to come up with something to do here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not about me, it's about the whole thing, you know. So you- well, it's kind of unprecedented. Very few musicians like, you know, Pat Metheny will tell you always be the worst person in the band. I take that to mean always try to be play with people who are more experienced than you. <laughs> oh, I see. Don't intentionally be bad. Yeah. And you've always... Try to have the best people possible around yeah. you. And you've, since the youngest age, mm-hmm. been surrounded by it. You've ascended into some of these great ensembles. Yeah, I was very fortunate. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. You started on the saxophone. What made you mm-hmm. switch to the guitar? Is that like age 14 or something? Well, you know, I started playing saxophone in, in just grade school. You know, I was 10. Yeah. And I had kind of a, you know, what seemed to be sort of an epiphany. You know, I saw a guy playing an alto saxophone in front of a junior high school band, you know, all dressed in uniforms, but he was featured. And I, I just kind of had this huge moment of like, that's what I want to do. And my mother was sitting next to me and I said, Mom, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so two weeks Sweet. later, she got me a, an alto saxophone and I started studying it in school. But um, I would always just pick up and play any instrument if it was around. Right. You know, I used to bang on the piano. You know, we had a piano. And um, there was a guitar because my father was, you know, played some basic, very basic guitar. And so there was a guitar at the house, and I'd fool around with that. So for me, it was the, the thing that made the shift was when I heard uh, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band with Michael Bloomfield sure. on lead guitar. Yeah. And I, I'm quite certain he was literally the first virtuoso blues rock guitar player, you know? Yeah. Certainly in America. And it just it gave me my direction, which I trace everything that I've ever done right back to Mike Bloomfield. Yeah, do you um, central headquarters there? Do you remember? Like, could you could you play a little jam from one of those records that just kind of it's probably in your bones, right? From all of, one of those Paul Butterfield uh-uh. anything? You don't have the feel. <laughs> just like to show people who might not have been there or heard it. Where well, what did, moved you about that? Well, you know, it's very high yeah. energy. You know, yeah. I think I see what you mean. Yeah, the music was very high energy. Mm-hmm. So. I, we couldn't possibly reproduce that right here, right now. But, um, you know, there there were a few things that fall very naturally on the guitar that he was doing. And that very classic blues lick. Because it's basically just playing a G triad on the top. And everything is right, 
right where your fingers fall, you know, after yeah. that. And then that C, uh, you know, the, the, the next chord is C in a blues. But you can just play, play right out of that same position. You're kind of playing out of a, a C triad position. You're just not yeah. playing the C. He was playing that uh, G9 chord. No, that that just yeah. falls right under your fingers as a guitar player, and um, you know others were already doing that. You know, like Keith Richards, you'd hear it in Keith Richards because he was sort of a a Chuck Berry, you know, fiend. Um, but Mike Bloomfield just opened up the guitar. You know, t he, he was the first guy, <clears throat> excuse me, that I know of who was playing the guitar from one end to the other. You know, right. using the entire fretboard. So he really knew the fretboard well. And uh, seems like some of his stuff is BB King esque, like where he's oh. taking that and branching it out, like you said, across the whole fretboard. Of course. Yeah. I mean, he was hugely into BB King, but he's also hugely into Freddie King, some Albert King, you know, all of the great all blues the guitar players. They, they all come together at a certain point. You know what yeah. I mean? They all, they all blend <laughs> right. totally. at a certain point. Um, and if someone tends to sound more like one than another, you know, that's because you have a predilection, a leaning towards, right? You just, yeah. I really favor B.B. King, therefore I sound more like B.B. King. Or like right. Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, like, I mean, the Albert King influence was enormous, you know? It was literal, I mean, note for note in certain places. Yeah. Much bigger tone. <laughs> well, and it, it, well, louder. You know, 80, yeah, louder and... Uh, I wouldn't say bigger. <laughs> well, produced. I'm with you 100%, but like the way it was produced and mic'd up for the 80s technology. Yeah, Sure. And um, but, um, he had a Dumble 2 on that stuff, I think. The first well, the, the very first uh, record, he was playing through a Dumble combo yeah. that belonged to Jackson Brown. Aha. Uh -huh. Interesting. And well, he said when he was interviewed after that record, he, he borrowed it you know, from Jackson. Yeah. And I guess they cut the tracks at Jackson's studio in Santa Monica. He, I read an interview with him <laughs> after the record had come out. And, and he said, yeah, that's the Dumble amplifier. He goes, as soon as I get me some money, I'm going to get me a Dumble. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's that's the Texas talking right there. So uh, you know he he went through steel string singers and overdrive specials and everything else. He tried out everything. You know. Right. So well. So then, what was your first of all? What is this beautiful guitar you brought today? I know this is one of your faves. Yes. Uh, this is a Gibson. It's a 1963 Gibson 355. Uh, so it has the five-way uh, switch on it. Uh, which is disconnected, and it used to have the liar tailpiece, that beautiful, right. you know, gold thing. Yeah. And after many years, I just recently, I've had this guitar for, you know, over 20 years probably, but uh, I finally just took off the uh, the liar and put a stop tailpiece on it. Yeah. So it is mono. The, the the switch is disconnected. So basically, it's like a 335. 
with an ebony fretboard. Something that uh, the old Robin Ford model, the original uh, Fender uh, Elite Esprit, yeah, the record, uh, the, the guitar I played on Talk to Your Daughter, and yeah. I played it on all of the Blue Line records. I played that a few times with my buddy Garth Weber, your buddy. Oh, yeah, 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 indeed. I gave him one many years ago. Yeah. Nice. And uh, it, so, you know, um, that instrument had an ebony fretboard. It also had a spruce top. It was a very bright guitar, actually. Um, so I, I, the 335s are just a little dark for me. You know, I really tried to almost go back to it a few years ago. And I went yeah. through two really nice ones, and I realized this is not really what I'm looking for, you know? I like, quite honestly, I could break, you know, what I like down to a Les Paul at this point. And I have a, you know, that 60 Telecaster that I've been playing for many years, which I consider that my blues instrument. Right. The Les Paul is basically the perfect guitar for me. They're too frigging heavy. Yes. I just don't want to carry that around, you know? So I'm starting to sp- experiment with specials, juniors, and SGs now. Have you tried the chambered ones? There's some really high-end chambered uh-huh. Les Pauls. I have, yeah. they, Do they uh, not sound the same, or are they? Anything or... new is not going to sound like a vintage right, so. Les Paul, you know? Vintage is uh, also really important to me. Yeah. Okay. So that's another reason why I'm not playing a Les Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. they're terribly expensive, you know. Violently expensive, as yeah, exactly. Matt Blackett would say. Mm-hmm. So, what was your first gigging guitar when you were a teenager? Well, uh, a, well, you know, like gigging guitar. Yeah, I mean, like because there was a period, you know, like yeah. my first electric guitar, which I did play some gigs on, <laughs> was an Orpheus. It was this Japanese, you know, three pickup piece of you know junk, basically that you don't care when you're a kid, you know. I mean, my father bought it for me out of a record store for $60 for Christmas. And of course, I was all over it, you know. Eventually, I was playing a Harmony that I was borrowing, a Harmony solid body. Yeah, my my first guitar was a Harmony Stratotone. Uh Uh-huh. It said three pickups on it and solid body. So I don't know the Stratotone. It was a, looked like a Les Paul one neck pickup. It was Mm. really a dull sounding. Okay, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it was hollow. Plywood. Yeah, I think this was sort of like their high end. Again, it didn't belong to me. I was borrowing it from the other guitar player but uh <laughs> then i switched to bass i wanted to be a bass player actually for a short period why because i love the bass it's interesting most people get kind of pushed into bass <laughs> not yeah, really no, they get pushed into it there's they're like people around them say dude you're a great guitar player but you're so good at bass and that's such a rare thing you should be a bass player right <laughs> but you actually yeah no, that's, that's cool so yeah so my the first instrument that i actually really spent some money on that was yeah. what i considered a really great instrument i bought a vox violin bass nice. and um i played bass in a band for a short period of time and then that's when bloomfield kicked in you know and i'm like oh this is what I want to do. And my so I would say my first real gigging guitar was a Guild Starfire 3. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Single cutaway, two pickups. So then you guys went ahead and started the Charles Ford Band. Is that a little later? I'm... Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then where are you gigging around? Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah, San Francisco area. After so... getting out of high school, um, yeah, I came down to... Uh, we came down to the Bay Area and started playing around the Bay Area. We never, you know made any money we, and we worked yeah. very little <laughs> we developed a reputation you know as kind of the the really good local blues band but nobody yeah. was coming out to see <laughs> us but um the 
the first blues record, actual album that I spent money on, you know, was, uh, it was called Blues Box. And it was on uh, Verve Records. It might have been Vanguard. I can never remember. I used to get those confused. Might have more likely been Vanguard, but could have been Verve. It was called Blues Box. There were three records inside it. One was a record of Jimmy Witherspoon, and one was a record of uh, Lightning Hopkins, and one was a record of Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry. So I was 13, you know, 14 you know, years old, and it was yeah. the first time that I heard you know, this kind of music. Uh, in particular, the, the Lightning Hopkins and Brownie McGee is what I'm thinking about right now because there used to be a lot of... Like uh, Light and Hopkins was doing this, you know? Yeah. Mama got mad at Papa Cause he didn't bring no coffee home Mama got mad at Papa Cause he didn't bring no coffee home She said, oh boy You know you done wrong Like that kind of lick, you know? Yeah. And that whole style of like uh, kind of bass line with your thumb. kind of thing comes more out of uh, Brownie McGee and you know Sonny Terry be playing harmonica but still it's that classic you know low end blues thing and you're using the open strings a lot and that same that same thing when you go to an A chord you know you're you're accompanying yourself you know with your thumb There's all of that uh, open string yeah. playing going on. And that thing right there, it's basically an E triad, right? Like you play, if you play an E7 chord and you can go up a minor third. So... All of that stuff was a real foundation for me when I started hearing the Butterfield Blues Band and Mike Bloomfield just playing the holy hell out of the guitar, you know, at fast tempos. He's basically using the same information, you know, as a fundamental. So you could speed that up, slow it down, play it in the middle. It's all pretty much the same language. It's a pretty simple language. You know, there aren't a lot of uh, phrases that you need to learn to be playing that kind of music. So that folk blues thing was a foundation for me. It really, it really yeah. was, it really established some ground for me. And so, you know, I was more ready for what Mike Bloomfield was doing. When I heard that, I'm like, 
Well, it's kind of the same thing, just at a yeah. much faster tempo. There's so much of that still in your playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's everywhere. But then you also have like a like more modern harmony with the way that you'll throw in like kind of like the, uh, I mean, the technical name is like dominant diminished scale or something. Well, I mean, like, yeah, the, you make the, that sound so bluesy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my phrasing is as a blues guitarist. I've thought about it a lot because, you know, you know, like... Uh, do you consider yourself a jazz guitarist, a rock guitarist, a blues guitarist, whatever? And in the past, I used to think, well, I've played a little of all those kinds of music, you know. But fundamentally, when it boils right down to it, I'm a blues guitar yeah. player. I come right out of Mike Bloomfield, brushed uh, up against, you know, Eric Clapton, had my mind blown by Jimi Hendrix, and then started hearing B.B. King and Albert King and Albert Collins and all those guys, and I heard them all live. So... The jazz thing came from my realizing at a certain point that I didn't know any chords. Uh-huh. I, I, I had a moment on a bandstand playing when I went, I don't know any chords, you know? I knew your basic open string chords, D, C, G, you know, like that. I knew a bar chord, and I knew a nine chord, that, which I got from that Mike Bloomfield thing, you know? Right. And a friend of mine showed me how to play the nine chord. So I bought a book. And yeah. I started, you know, learning all these jazz chord voicings and how they were used in a jazz setting. And um, A Mickey Baker book, was it? Yeah, the Mickey Baker Jazz Volume 1. So yeah. I learned all of my chords. Every chord that I ever play, I learned out of the Mickey Baker Jazz Chords book, Volume 1. Most of them are in that book, I think. All of them. <laughs> yeah. They are. They're all in there. So that became, uh, you know, and then I learned the scales that, you know, went over yeah. those chords. And I was playing with Charlie Musselwhite. I was 19. And so I found it very easy to put all those chords into Charlie's music because it was 12 bar blues. You know, you can use it's jazz yeah. is basically a variety of ways of playing a 2 5 1, you know. Yeah. So I started just applying those chords to what I was doing uh, on the gig with Charlie Musselwhite, and it all fit very well. Fantastic. Can I hear a little bit of uh, how those chords start to get into your playing? Sure. Well, hey, <laughs> what used to be. And then the four chord. C, same thing, D, right? So right. I had basically three chords and three chord voicings. So I, I started learning, uh, well, I learned a 13 chord. So now I've got a hip chord, what I thought it was a hip chord. Sure. You can't go, <laughs> you can't slide it, but you can go. Right? Nice. You can play that on all. So um, uh, I also learned a different version of the nine chord, which is the same thing. Uh, it's just played. It's just a different played in a different position on the guitar, but they're exactly the same notes. If you play that voicing, they're yep. identical, but your fingers are different and on different yep. strings, right? Sure. So I found another way to play the thirteen chord instead of this basic one that was the first one I learned in the Mickey Baker book. I learned to play it in a different position, much closer to the nine chord, right. which that I was going to play when I went to C. So the voicings got closer. And right now, now you're staying in like a one fret radius instead of jumping up and down the neck. Exactly. You can't see. Yeah. So you want to reduce your movement. Yeah. <laughs> and so... This is a 13th chord, which is, uh, it, 
I'm playing an F on the A string with my first finger. Above that, a B on the D string with my third finger, ring finger. An E on the G string with my little finger. And a G on the B string with my second yeah. finger. So, not only could I play a G13, but I found that... I started introducing altered chords into the mix. So a, a G13, a G13 flat nine, a C13, you know, that's a, a nice little melody that's created there. Da, 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 or just da, 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 to get to the four chords. So I started introducing altered chords. And it, was, it took a while before I learned the scales that ran through these chords. I was playing the chords before I, was, I knew what to do with them. I was still yeah. playing very basic blues, you know, pentatonic, diatonic, you know, over these chords. But, you know, it wasn't until a little bit later that I, I got another book and I learned the chords that go through those. And I started trying to play, you know, altered scales on those altered chords, which they deserved. Sweet. <laughs> and... That pretty much is where my style, you know, really became my own version yeah. of all of this, you know, all these influences, you know. Yeah, definitely that extra layer of harmony. Yeah, and it wasn't really quite going on in that way at the time, you know. There were, I only know one guy, I only knew, I should say, one guy who I would say was doing exactly the same thing. He was certainly ahead of me, and a much better guitar player was Terry Haggerty with the Sons of Champlin. Great guitar player. He was the first guy that I heard playing jazz loud, you know? Right. And only on a record. I never saw him play live. I saw him. Like, I did a thing with him, like, time flies. It might have been 10 years ago, but it seems like yesterday. And he's got it, man. He's still got it. He was just shrouping. He's tearing it up. Shrouping. He's a great yeah. guitar player. Yeah, he's a yeah. really cool guy, too. I like him a lot. I met him only once briefly recently because he's good friends with another friend of mine. Well, can we play a little groove and maybe hear you stretch out a little bit into some of those ideas? I think uh -huh. not. Like, were you just playing in G, I guess? Do we have to play a shuffle? Whatever you want. <laughs> I, I play, dude, I like to play. I play a lot. You want to play something funkier? Okay, that's good. Let me tone this down a little bit. Let me just start off. Let's count it off. Go ahead. You do. Three, four.
like how you have the amp dialed in. It's just got just a hint of bite when you really hit the string. It's breaking up. Is that how you like to dial in a super reverb kind of? Or is I know you just met this amp two minutes before we plugged in. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a pretty good amp. You know, it's it's breaking up uh, a little earlier than I would I would like it to. But you know, supers uh, when they're really right are are just really good guitar amplifiers. You know, you miss a little bit of the low end. Right. And uh, I've had a couple of twins um, modified by Alexander Dumble, and that's what he's done. He's just made it so the low end actually exists. It doesn't mush out, you know, yeah. and just break up down there, which is kind of the problem with the super. I always thought some of that was the tens of the speakers. So you think it's, part, it's the amp too, not just the four tens. I'm no expert, right. but <laughs> it's certainly been the case, you know. Yeah, oh, he can tighten up the low end on a, on a Fender Super Reverb. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he can do it. For a fee. Of course. <laughs> but not that yeah. expensive. Hey everybody, quick reminder here that you can watch Robin Ford demonstrating how he uses the Vertex Boost pedal online at vertexeffects.com. You can also see videos of other great guitarists showing you how they use the Vertex Boost. In fact, one of you can win a Vertex Boost pedal autographed by Robin himself. For that, you're going to head over to guitarplayer.com. Look for the article on this episode of No Guitar is Safe with Robin Ford. I'll also put a link to that entry form on the No Guitar is Safe Facebook page. I mean, you can't miss it. But anyway, back to VertexEffects.com. That's a good site, too, if you want to talk to the guy who created the Vertex Boost. Mason, he's happy to chat with you there. Ask him questions about the Vertex Boost or any other product. Remember, your code ROBIN gets you 20% off and free shipping. Remember, the pedal has a 30-day satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty, and it's made by hand in the U.S. of A. VertexEffects.com. Well, I mean, if we have time, you know, I'd love to talk about some of the artists that you've worked with mm -hmm. and, and what you took away from some of sure. these amazing players. Like mm -hmm. Jimmy Witherspoon, you've mentioned that that was one of your most profound yeah. gigs. Yeah. Why is it, why was it, what was so amazing about that gig? Well, it, you know, we were referencing that record Blues Box, mm -hmm. right? Which had that, um, that Jimmy Witherspoon record in it. Mm -hmm. And I just you know, loved him. I just loved it. Then there were no pictures in there, but I actually had a visual image of Jimmy Witherspoon <laughs> before I ever laid eyes on him. And the first time I ever saw a picture of him was in person. <laughs> first time I actually saw his visage, you know. Right. He was big and he had an afro, you know, not a huge afro, but he was natural, you know what right. I mean? And a mustache, right? Which was kind of a bushy mustache. And I'm like, wow, that's different. And then I saw pictures of him around the time he made the record that I, I fell in love with, and he looked exactly like the image that I had of him. So he just had, <laughs> used to have a process. Right, so you know? your mind's eye was correct. Yes, it was, which I thought was kind of cool. But uh, anyway, it really deeply affected me, you know, in what I like about in blues. You know, it's just Jimmy Witherspoon's way of, you know, of producing blues music uh, for me, just really worked because it was that beautiful combination of deep, soulful funkiness and sophistication. You know, potentially in the in the in the instruments around him, he comes out of a back. He's like Jimmy Rushing. You know, he comes out of that background. He always used to say, you know, my first gig singing professionally was with Count Basie in Calcutta, India. <laughs> really? <laughs> he was a cook on, in, in the Merchant Marines. No shit. Yeah. And somehow he connected, you know, over, he was overseas and he connected with Count Basie and he sang with him. 
And those guys were shouters, right? Because they, yeah, in fact, they, blue they shouters, get yeah, get over think, the band, mm-hmm, good giant point. band behind them, yeah, big energy. That's right. right. So Jimmy Rushing was a big, you know, influence on Spoon and um, Big Joe Williams. Yeah, Jimmy Rushing. And um, so anyway, you know, that combination of you got the whole the whole history of of the blues is is all there, you know, from its origins into, you know, a more modern, uh, sophisticated presentation. Yeah. So that was really formative for me, you know. Amazing how much I yeah. took out of that one box set. Mm-hmm. I learned a ton, you know. There it is. And any examples of kind of his his tunes? Do you guys did some yourself, right? You did an album with Witherspoon, like the Big Bad Boss stuff, like that, or Big Boss you? Man. You mean? Big Boss Man. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, yeah. We did. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I did make a couple of records with him. Uh, one was a live album, and one was yeah. a studio record. So Spoon would, you know. Uh, most of what he did came out, as I say, of kind of Jimmy Rushing, you know? Everything was in A-flat, slow blues in A-flat, shuffle in B-flat. That was pretty much it. Although, there was this one thing we used to do called Sweet Lotus Blossom. Something like, yeah. Soothe me with your caress, Sweet Lotus Blossom, please do. In your distress, in my distress, sweet lotus blossom, please do. Since you come, da 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 jazz changes, right? Sweet. Even though I know, even though I know it's just something like that. Even though I know it's just fantasy, da 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 da. Sweet Lotus Blossom, please do. So, you know, I almost had to talk him into doing that song because he really liked the slow blues and shuffles, you know. That's pretty much was the meat and potatoes of everything that we did. So I found that song on one of his records and I said, hey, Spoon, can we do this song too? He goes, oh yeah, I like that song. So we we did that and I, I would bring things to him, you know. From his and old records, or just <laughs> in some cases, yeah. and or just songs that I thought might be good for him that we could do, and we started doing a little bit of Chicago blues. We did uh, went down the road, stop at Fannie Mae's, tell Fannie when I heard her uh, boyfriend say, "No, don't stop me talking. I'll tell everything I know." I'm gonna break up this signifying. Lord, somebody's got to go. So he liked that. And so I got him to, to do uh, Don't Start Me Talking, which yeah. I don't know where it's from, but I learned it from a James Cotton record. What can I hear a lead that you would have done on that? Like if I play rhythm for that? Da 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 da. All right. It's too much shuffle. Is it the shuffle? Two. One, two, So 
something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's that starting amp's to popping. freak out. Yeah. It's popping at the real high levels, but hey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you're all right with it. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's, this is like gonzo recording session, <laughs> which is fun. You know, it's fun to like, uh, just meet up with guitar players in different locations. Uh-huh. And, right. And talk. Um, I mean, we're just barely touching on all the artists. How did you end up playing with, say, the Yellow Jackets? And was that an interesting gig for you? That's the first time I remember hearing you and hearing your names. I was like, check this out, Robin Ford. Oh, well, I put that band together uh, for my first solo album, which was called The Inside Story. I was signed to Elektra Records. And Russell Ferrante and I had known each other for a few years um, in the Bay Area. He's from San Jose. He played the second year I was with. I was with Jimmy Witherspoon for two years. And the first year, it was a pianist named Paul Nagel. And um, Paul Nagel, yeah, I'm starting to think, yeah, I have another friend named Pat Nagel. But Paul Nagel, keyboard player. So uh, we went to Europe with Spoon, and Paul didn't want to go. So I called uh, Russell Ferrante, and uh, I'd been looking for a way to work with him. I wanted to work with him because he was the best musician I knew up there. Uh, in many ways still is. So he was willing to jump on board, and so he and I played together with Spoon for a year. And then I moved you know, on to work with the LA, excuse me, uh, the LA Express and Joni Mitchell, and that led to the George Harrison thing, and then back to Joni Mitchell, and then I moved back out. I, I was living in Colorado, and I moved back out to LA, and I went to the studio to listen to... Uh, I, I went to visit Joni at the recording studio, where she was working. She was recording Hey Jira. And I had turned her on to Jaco Pistorius when she passed through Colorado and visited at my house out there. I said, I got something you need to hear because you're going to want to work with this guy. And I played her Portrait of Tracy off the yep. Jaco record. And I'd never heard of Jaco Pistorius before, you know? Uh-huh. I bought that record totally cold, you know? His first solo album. And... um she fell in love with it. She tracked him down. I, when I went out to L.A. and went to visit at the studio, there was Jocko doing overdubs for Hey Jira. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. She... And, and a little later that evening, um, Joe Smith from Electra Records came by because she was signed to Electra. And he said, Robin Ford, I've been looking for you. Where you been? I want to sign you to Electra Records. I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I mean, that was my first record deal right there. Like, I didn't right. even ask for it. No demo, you know. I was like, damn. So uh, I signed to Electra Records, and I had made a deal with Russell Ferrante. I said, so when I get my record deal and, we start, and, I, and I start making records, will you come to L.A.? He said yes. So I called him up, got a record deal, ready to go. He's still down here, isn't okay. he? Okay, so he moved down to Los Angeles. Yeah, he's been here ever since. Yeah, he blames you, I guess. Well, he should. Or th- thanks you. Thanks you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, of opinion, I suppose. Well, there's a great new Jocko documentary made by uh, Robert Trujillo from Metallica. He put in so much, of, invested so much to build that. this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to send you a copy. It's really <clears throat> Thank you. It just came out like a week ago. Yeah, a tragedy. And it tells the whole story. Every, Shakespearean you know. proportions. But yeah, and she mentions that a friend of hers recommended this bass player, Jocko. Now we know who that friend is. Joni did? Yeah. In the oh, movie, I see. She they, didn't say my name, but she said a friend. <laughs> I think if I could be recalling it correctly, yeah. incorrectly. Yeah, that was me. I mean, I'd just love to know a little bit, what do you take away from some of these artists like Joni Mitchell? There's an mm-hmm. interesting character. What did you uh, learn from her or what? Well, that first year with her was the most important year of my musical life because I had never played with 
great musicians before. You know, it had always been my buddies, you know, people around me. Um, not that I didn't consider them good musicians, right. but I mean people who were evolved, you know, sure. beyond where we were. <laughs> Joining that band, the LA Express, to uh, do the, uh, the tour, which resulted in um, hissing, excuse me, uh, uh, Miles of Isles was a live right. album that came out yeah. of that tour, and we were playing a lot of the music from uh, Court and Spark. So for the first time, I'm playing with great musicians, and I'm playing in a setting that is completely, absolutely, you know, like another, you know, realm of, of making music, you know. All I knew was basically blues and soloing, you know, that was my thing. <laughs> so... Now I'm actually, I'm in a role to my function. I have, I have different functions and different things that I need to do, you know. So that, especially that first year with her, I learned right. so much from Tom Scott and Roger Kellaway was the pianist at first and just learning how to play with a band. What were the new things that you were having to do, new duties on guitar? Well, uh, for one thing, play parts, you know, um, consistently. I'd never done that. No, for me, yeah. it was just, you know, like playing you know in an improvisational way kind of at all times yeah. you know jazz and blues that was my thing i didn't know anything about playing with the rhythm section so suddenly i need to fit in here and i need to do something consistently you know or you know jones music was a little bit more open like the la express that's where the parts thing you know really started happening i never even while i was with them i don't think i ever really did that band justice but i got to <laughs> learn a lot uh, but Jones' music was just a little bit more open. Like, they were, yeah. you know, it was more strummy. Well, isn't, a lot I mean, of volume pedal work, you know. And the free, I mean, come on. It's some of the most difficult stuff we can do is play with a folk singer. Not to pigeonhole her as a folk singer, but <laughs> they some of them come from a background where one time around the phrase has got a bar of five, the next time it's got a bar of three, or, you know, it's like built around the lyrics. Do you find some of that? with? I always found Joni's music to have, like, really kind of challenging phrasing or arrangements or a little bit but i i, I found really. it just pretty you know most of it was in four four you know most of the bars were even yeah, really I, was, yeah. mm-hmm. I think that's one reason why she wanted jocko she was having a hard time finding people you know like a bass player she mentioned who could really bring what she was looking for in terms of being adventurous and well you know she she hooked up with him based on Portrait of Tracy, you know, yeah. which was not a rhythm section thing. It was a solo yeah. bass. There you, know? you go. It was all those harmonics. Yeah. No one had ever done that. You know, like the, that yeah. was fresh to her ears as much as it was to ours. And she's like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard come out of a bass. She's an artist. She's like, yes. I need to check out some of that. And, you know, of course, he brought a lot more, you know, than just that, you know, to her music, his rhythm and all of that, you know. But uh, yeah. her music was complex, uh, mainly in the harmony, you know, like the, yeah. the, the open tunings that she used, you know. So for me, like I found myself, you know, th- there was a lot of this kind of, you know. Right. Help me, I think I'm falling. I don't, yeah, I don't remember how it sounds- goes, but those kind of open chords, you know. It wasn't it, um, just uh, straight triads, you know? Sure. They were always yeah. kind of open, you know? Which would be 
chords on top of chords, you know, yeah. like a D over A. Basically, yeah. it's like an A major seven, yep. but you don't want to hear that. When right. you can hear that, you yeah. know, and she was using sophisticated harmonies in a way that did not sound like jazz. Yeah, it was her own thing. Yeah, they were just these beautiful manifestations. There's a lot of that. Like, and, I mean, this to me is a pretty good little thing. Um, if you take a root note and then play the triad of the five chord on top of it, there you go. That's a, If you're in the key of G, the five chord is D. Yep. That's a very Joni Mitchell chord, you know? Right. All the people that come to all these parties, they've got a lot of style. Da, 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 da. And I imagine sometimes you'd get those with open tunings, too. To make, she would yeah. tune that way, yeah. So the, the sound was established by her just strumming an open yeah. guitar. There, there's your har- There's right. your, there your palette. Right. And so that, to me, was, you know, the most challenging aspect of her, of her music was staying within her harmonic palette. You know, interesting. Yeah, she definitely. Yeah, those albums are they're very vibrant. Great musician, man. Well, that's cool. And did that lead to? Well, we'll put it this way: Where were you on your twenty-third birthday, and how did you get there? Oh, well, I was <laughs> on the road with George Harrison, and uh, I met George um, backstage after uh, we played in London with Joni Mitchell with the LA Express, nineteen seventy-four, and we hung out afterwards back at the hotel at Joni's Suite. He told me the story of his red Les Paul being stolen and, and finally getting it back. <laughs> nice. Which was interesting. Um, uh, and uh, we all went out to his house the next day and we recorded with him that night. Uh, the LA, Joni went back to London and the LA Express stayed. And So wait, you guys are like partying in the hotel and then he says, hey, why don't you come over and track tomorrow? How did this work? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, cool. Yeah, that was it. And Tom Scott told me um, kind of after the fact, it was, you know, Tom, John yeah. Guerin, Max Bennett on bass, uh, keyboard player. Yeah, I think it was still, yeah, it was Roger Kellaway for sure. So... Um, he indeed said, come out. And um, what Tom told me, uh, who was really the connection with George, because he, Tom Scott, he'd worked with George and Ravi Shankar on a record called Shankar Family and Friends. And Tom was sort of like the, West, the, the arranger of the Western group, because he had an interest in Indian music, had studied yeah. it a bit. And Ravi Shankar had the Indian orchestra. And so it's a Western Eastern band. They come together. So... George was looking for a band to do a tour, you know, with Robbie. So my understanding was later that he said, George basically asked us to come out and record because he was thinking about using the LA Express as his band. And in the end, he wound up, you know, feeling more comfortable working with people that he knew and had worked with over the years, which was, you know, Willie Weeks on bass and Andy Newmark and Jim Keltner, both on drums and Billy Preston on keyboards. But he brought, he knew, Tom Tom knew he was going to do it. And then they brought me in as the second guitar player. Sweet. Pretty wild. What, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with a, with a Beatle. Yeah. I mean, it was a shocking change. (laughs) Yeah. From the way I had been envisioning myself, you know, up until that point, you know, both with Joni Mitchell and then George Harrison is this rock thing, you know, kind of more rock than anything else. Yeah. What inspired you most about your, how long did you play them, a year or something or, mm. or whatever? Well, I, I worked for, for Joan for like nine months. The George Harrison tour, that whole kind of period with rehearsal and the tour was about a three month period. 
Then there was a break for quite a bit, and uh, and then I toured again with Joni. So the period yeah, with yeah. George was only three months of actually, you know, and it was George's only tour. It was the only time he ever took a band on the road. You know? Interesting. Wow. So what yeah. were the shows like? What was it like for you up there? Well, it was it was unfortunate, you know, because uh, George had no voice. And he wasn't doing anything to help that situation. He was doing everything to make mean, that situation worse. You mean he wasn't Horse. a powerful singer? Or he, he couldn't he sing. Just, his voice couldn't All handle it. slim and, you know, like sore. And he was just a mess. Vocally, he was a mess. And, as, and again, you know, he wasn't doing anything to make the situation any better. So it was really poor from that side. And, you know, the audience could tell, you know. And I've heard a yeah. couple of bootlegs. And it's very apparent, you know, the guy's got no voice, you know. So mm. that makes it tough, you know, for the whole thing to feel like much, you know. Sure. Unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, he, yeah. He didn't belong out there but, leading a band, you know. It wasn't his, his personal yeah. predilection. And as I say, he had never right. done it before, and he never did it again. <laughs> <laughs> he got his taste of it. And <laughs> decided it was a nut. Not for it. But what did you learn working hand-in-hand hand with one of the biggest stars in the world? Like I, about the business or about anything? No, I didn't uh, learn anything. Nothing? Did you no. at least have better hotel rooms than usual? Or Well, I mean, it was first class, <laughs> private jet, all of that. But, um, you know, the music, to me, I didn't really care for. You know, I mean, it was A, D, G, C, you know. Uh, there was nothing challenging about the music at all. And his voice was terrible. That's more chords than the blues, though. I don't know. <laughs> Well, then it depends on one, what blues you're listening one, to. One, four, five. <laughs> but uh, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, the Johnny you... thing was incredible. The thing with him was, it was more like an aberration. You know, I don't mean that in a negative way. But yeah, I had no idea. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> what was that? Did you do some Beatles tunes with him? A couple? Uh, you know, we no. we did, of course, something. Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, tune. We did a ballad version of, uh, well, it, it is a ballad, but we did a different kind of a version of John Lennon's uh, In My Life. I remember doing that. I mean, I, yeah. I don't even remember yeah. the music we played, right. quite honestly, and it was a long show. <laughs> uh, yeah. We were doing Things From All Things Must Pass, and, you know, the the album, which was Dark Horse, which was a weird record, you know. I've, you know, the concert for Bangladesh is one of the Ravi Shankar performance. I think it's Ali Akbar Khan with him in the front. It would be. That's one of the most powerful videos from that era. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen it. Oh, you got to watch just, even just for the front. They do, it opens with those two. With Ravi and yeah. Alaraka. They are swinging. It's not Akbar Khan, Alaraka, the percussionist. Okay. Well, no, I think it's three of them. Oh, Possib- three. Yeah, they're swinging. Yeah, Ali Akbar Khan played the Sarod. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Definitely. He, I mean, he brought that to, seems like he brought that to the masses in a big way. That, Ravi? No, uh, George introducing us to Ravi Shankar into such oh, a huge level. It's definitely, yeah, he was very is, important in exposing Ravi Shankar. And that's such like a, that kind of really adds a kind of psychedelic sort of element to rock and roll and kind of having those outside world influences. And, sure. You know, um, you've done so many sessions too that people might not realize. I was checking you out and like... It's funny, some of these Kiss albums, like I found out recently Rick Derringer did a Kiss lead guitar track, and now I found out you did two songs. Mm. Uh-huh. I think I wrote them down here uh, for those Kiss fans. Rock and Roll Hell and I Still Love You. Can you tell me about those sessions? Yeah. Um, the producer of that album is a guy named Michael James Jackson, and Michael and I had worked together on a series of recordings that wound up never being released um, for Elektra. Mm-hmm. So that's how he and I were acquainted. And uh, Ace Freely was no longer uh, in the band, and uh, so they needed, you know, lead guitar. Mm-hmm. 
So they used a whole variety of different people, you know, for that. And, uh, you know, we're basically also looking for a guitar player to take Ace's place, you know. That album wound up being Creatures of the Night, and uh, I played like... I was down there, I think, like every night for about nine nights in a row, playing on this, playing on that, you know, stuff like that. And right. um, two solos wound up on the record, basically, those two songs. Did you play rhythm on those tracks, too? Or? I don't think yeah. so. I, 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 I might have done some. <laughs> Where does this fit into your whole kind of path as a musician? Did you envision, as I mean, being a session musician, how long did you want to do that? Do you still like to do that? Did, were you surprised you were playing on a Kiss record? <laughs> well... Um, I never saw myself nor aspired to be a session player in L.A. It just kind of happened that I wound up getting called, you know, because I was here and I was associated with session players. And um, people started thinking of me as one of the local guitar players, you know. So, you know, I did a certain amount of it. And um, nine times out of ten, it would be, you know, like Tom Scott would be, you know, the direct, the conductor, the writer, right. you know, or Pat Williams, who was another guy. Both these people, they knew what I was capable of and what I was not capable of because I don't read, you know. I'd get called for certain things and I'd be over my head for sure, like really over my head. And uh, that was embarrassing. But it was, um, you know, trying to make a living, you know. What, do you remember one of those instances? What happened? Oh, like, <laughs> I remember being called for a date. I don't know if it was a, a recording for an artist or if it was television show, source right. music. But it was a whole big band in a room. And um, the music was, you know, aggressive. It wasn't, uh, you know, light. And um, I, I just, I'm like, shit, they got this chart in front of me, you know. And I just, I remember the, the engineer kept saying, hey, guitar player, turn up. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll turn up, you know, like, I Dude, didn't know what to play. You know? You're the embodiment of the joke, how do you make a guitar player turn down? Put some sheet music in front of him. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I can say that because I was the same way once I got thrown on stage at my high school graduation because mm-hmm. I'm at the Greek Theater, Berkeley, 12,000 people, big high school. Mm-hmm. Giant big band chart in front of me. I've never played a song. Oh. So I'm just kind of like... And yeah, te- pages and pages. The technician comes up to me. He's like, Are, we're not getting a signal from you. Is everything all right? Right. right. Exactly. But same thing. The sheet music made me turn down. Just like the fucking joke. Indeed. We don't want to like... We don't want to empower that joke. But uh, <laughs> It's a good joke. It's a good one. So I want to get, get back, definitely talk about the, your album because... You have so many great artists on it. Mm. First of all, Zizi Ward, what a voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you discover her? Well, I was, I was unaware of her, um, but I... Um, Joni Mitchell recommended her to you? No. That's a, that's a joke. <laughs> um, it was uh, my management, actually. And uh, it was management's notion to have uh, a bunch of guests on the record. I was planning on having Sonny Landreth on a couple of things, Already, you know, because Sonny and I have, we've recorded, I've recorded on his record in the past. And, you know, we're, we're friends and we enjoy it whenever we ever can get together. And so I had planned on having Sonny on the record, but it wasn't like I'm thinking guests, you know, per se. Uh, and management, which was relatively new at the time, uh, said, let's get some more. <laughs> so they asked me who I might be interested in and they came up with ideas on their own. And uh, Lisa Jenkins, one of my... Two managers uh, said um, she recommended ZZ Ward. So I went online and checked her out, and I liked her, 
you know? So I wrote a piece of music for us. I wrote us a duet. She's got such a beautiful vibrato and mm-hmm. such a mellow voice. Yeah, mellow. I, well, I wouldn't I call know, it mellow. Be- Rich, certainly on that recording. That song is so mellow. That's a, my yeah. introduction to her. It's cool that you're going to oh, really? introduce her to so many people. Well, how I about mean, that? I heard the name. Mm-hmm. But now, you yeah, know, when you, when someone that you're a fan of puts it in your face, you listen right. to it with open ears. Right, right. That's nice to hear. I'm a, a longtime fan. I like to say a friend of Sonny Landreth, mm-hmm. or I've met him a couple few times. Mm-hmm. Um, you must dig on his playing a little bit, right? Because, I mean, there's nobody like him, the way he plays with the slide. And... No, I, I think he almost <laughs> gets sick of it. People saying, you know, you play differently than everybody else. It's like, well, yeah, I do. So, <laughs> and he yeah. does. But uh, yes, he, he's a very unique uh, wow. slide guitar player and uh, beautiful. Well, just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So we first met a long time ago. I mean, it would have been the early 90s. And uh, he opened some shows for me on the East Coast. And I was unaware of him. You know, he, he would play the first set and then we'd come out and play. And... Uh, I wasn't paying attention to him. Uh, I heard a little bit, and I'm like, wow, he's got good time. He's got a good sound. He's in tune, you know? And uh, I liked it. And then I, I, so I asked him to come out and sit in with us, you know, on, on our set. And we, he came out, and we did, uh, a, ver- we did a little version of um, Start It Up, you know, a little E shuffle blues. Yeah. And he just started playing this little thing behind me that was so cool. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I couldn't understand what or how he was doing it, you know. So that, my fascination, you know, and, and respect for his playing did you started learn, right there. Did you learn what he had, anything no, about what he's doing? I don't play the slide, you know. But, uh, I mean, me neither, but I, I definitely talk to him and understand somehow the way he frets notes behind the slide. Yeah. And so the string drops below the slide and gets weird stuff that, mm-hmm. I mean, besides the technical stuff, he's just got tone and vibrato, like you're saying. Oh, he's just, yeah. Every, yeah, he's the complete... The whole more. package. Yeah, Sonny's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you had like one song has uh, Keb Mo and Robert Randolph on your new record. Yeah, uh, um, the song is called uh, Justified. Justified. Yeah, and um, great tune. Yeah, should I play a little bit of that? Please. Okay, that's something that I I really enjoyed. I'm gonna play it a half step down. I think. Let's see. Well, I have to play it too high. Uh, I think right. it's in D flat. I was thinking the, the other song. Day of the Planets. Oh, Day of the Planets. That yeah. one's like, the guitar is like down a whole step or something. Uh, it might be. But okay, go ahead. Yeah, so. Creaky stairs and ladders. I feel the floor might cave. The carpet worn to tatters. Feels like flowers on an early grave. And I'd be justified. To pick up my things and walk, I'd be justified. Had enough of your crazy talk. Well, I can match and gasoline. About to blow to smithereens, and I'd be justified. So. I mean, this is a song that would not have appeared on a Robin Ford record in the past. You know what I mean? It's part of what I've enjoyed over the years. It is kind of evolving as a songwriter so that it's not all just, you know, blues or this, that, or the other thing, you know? So having written this song and my management saying, we need to get some guests on your record, I immediately thought of Keb Mo, And he's perfect for it, you know? So I called him up 
and uh, you know, he said, "Can you send me, you know, a, a version of it, you know, before uh, I say yes?" Because <laughs> it was it was a specific song, you All know. Right. I mean, it wasn't like let's do something together. It's like I got a song, I'd like you to sing it, you know. So send right. it to me, let me hear it. So I, you know, we sent it out to him, and he just wrote me back, "I'm in." <laughs> nice. And uh, Kevin did his part out in in Nashville, where he lives. So we sent him the recording. And uh, he just sang the whole song from top to bottom. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then uh, I sang the whole song from top to bottom. And then I edited it, you know, which, you know, made right. the most sense to make it a proper duet. And then you got a choir back there or something. I mean, I was tempted to start singing in while you were playing just now, but I didn't want to ruin The girls. I didn't yeah. want to ruin it. <laughs> it's two girls. Right. Yeah, yeah. It sounds really full. And they, uh, they become six. Right. You know, they do two and then they do again they do again. Yeah. And then you some Robert Randolph's on that team, right? Yes. I mean, that sacred steel sound is so identifiable. He plays identifiable. his butt off, and it's like, you know, and that also was the perfect song, because I had six guests. I'm like, how am I going to fit these people onto the, this one record and have it still be a Robin Ford record and have continuity, yeah. you know, so that it's not like, well, whose record are we listening to here, you know? So that was a bit of a dance, but I thought Robert on Justified with Kev Moe solves two problems, you know? And uh, it really turned out really well. It really did. It's just there's so much space still, even with all those people on that song. It's, the space is there. That's what you call musicality. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Let me say one thing. Please. Because it's something that has sort of come to me as a, a, a way of talking about making music that I don't hear in other places. And, you know, the phrase that I came up with was weights and measures. You know, it's, it's another way of saying dynamics and orchestration, you know, but I think people can get a little bit lost in those things. (laughs) Weights and measures, you know, like if you have a heavy bass going on down here, you don't double it. You play something above that, you know. If you have an acoustic and electric guitar, you may or may not want to put them together to create a single sound, or you may want to separate them so that, you know, you have these colors are separated, therefore each color speaks on its own and then you find a way to balance those things so maybe one doesn't overshadow the other or maybe you would like for one to overshadow the other so you're you're always it's it's weights and measures it's literally as simple as that you know it's cooking is also a great example analogy you know little salt little pepper those kind of things not too much salt not too much pepper but i I like weights and measures i think that's great and it applies to mixing too in the sense balance Yeah, equalizing in all these different ways that we can use weights and measures. That's what they used to call mixing, was balance. There you go. That's That was the, the British expression, was balance, you know? You're yeah. balancing the instruments so that they mm. achieve maximum result for whatever their effect is meant to be. So you're, you take that to everything that ever happens musically, any musical situation you're in. That's what you're doing. It's like, wow, that guy's playing really yeah. loud. I don't play louder than him. I play softer than him, you know? That's one for the guitar players to learn early on, if possible, please. Well, there's another interesting thing that I find often, and it's not happening here, by the way. (laughs) But when I get together with another guitar player, it's usually young people, especially, you know? It's like, they're playing louder than me, Uh, and they don't even frigging realize it. It's like, okay, you're here to learn something from me. You want to jam something. We start playing together. You can't even hear me. (laughs) <laughs> and you're yeah. just banging away on your guitar. It's like, a, hang on, you know, wait a minute. There's a problem there, right? Yeah. So right away, balance. You know, I mean, like you're instantly relating to everything 
that way all oh, the yeah. time. You know, I do some teaching at MI mm-hmm. where you used to teach or do appearances back in the day. Yeah, I would, I would counsel. Counsel, yes. Yeah. How lucky those students were. Yeah, I'd say that's the number one thing. It's just like, yo, when someone else is taking the lead, whether it's a singer or sax, just make sure you're way under them. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of the students listening. have not used the volume knob as a dynamic control. Now, wait, <laughs> speaking of balance and weights and measures, I can't believe I almost forgot to ask you about your Miles Davis years mm-hmm. or uh-huh. year. It's about a year? Months. Months again? Yeah. yeah it's cool. Now, um, how did you end up playing with him? Tommy LaPuma, uh, the producer of many big hit records, <laughs> is the man who signed uh, the Yellow Jackets to Warner Brothers years ago yeah. for their first record. And... Um, so Tommy was producing Tutu, Miles' uh, first record for Warner Brothers, because Miles had finally left Columbia and gone to Warner's. So this was his first record on a new label in his career. And uh, Tommy was the producer. And so Mike Stern left uh, the band, Miles Davis's group, and Miles asked Tommy, you know, he said, I'm looking for a guitar player. You got any ideas? And Tommy immediately said, Robin Ford. Now, he didn't know anything about me, but uh, Tommy played him some Yellow Jackets recordings. And Tommy said, excuse me, Miles said, I like the way he plays on the beat. (laughs) That was the one thing that he said. So my timing, you know, it's like I I play right in the center of the the beat. That's my whole thing is about, that's why, you know, Mm. drummers who like, you know, play on the back side is like, why? (laughs) The beat is here. That's just kind of, I'm fiercely about the the middle but there's weight and measures like if you got the kick on the center like you're indicating and the snare a little bit on the backside, that can give it a different weight well yes and that's what most people think and do and yeah etc 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 you like your snare drum right on the center too i like <laughs> the time right in the middle well i so, digress yeah i digress i got to hear about your meeting well miles. anyway so he's like uh so those are the kinds of things that you know are interesting about a guy like Miles yeah. Davis. One of the most interesting things about him is that he almost never said the obvious, you know. Right. So that you're right. So yeah. it was a good start. So um, in any case, uh, I got a call, you know, from uh, Tommy. No, actually, from Jimmy Haslip, because um, Tommy had called Jimmy asking, looking for my number. Jimmy called me and gave me Tommy's number. <laughs> so Jimmy said, Miles Davis wants you, you know, is looking for you. You know, I'm like, holy mackerel. So I called Tommy LaPuma and he said, so you want to do it? And I'm like, yeah, are you kidding me? And he's like, uh, okay, well, I think Miles is over at the studio. I'll give him a call and I have him call you. <laughs> was this, he, were you both in the same city and was that LA? No, he was in New York. Was New I was York. in LA. Yeah. So uh, three days later, you know. So every time the phone rings, I think it's going to be Miles Davis, and it wasn't for three days. Finally, it was. And he just said, you want to play with me? And I said, yeah. Here's Jim. Gave me his tour manager. So uh, that's how it started. And 10 days later, I was on a red eye to Washington, D.C., and we uh, played a show at the, I think it's called the Hall of Congress or something. And uh, it was a bill with B.B. King. And Miles Davis. Nice. Was your first rehearsal like sound check that day, or I had no rehearsal. You just not, I didn't even have sound right. check. Right. No sound check. Just pop no. up. There. What was your first meeting with Miles like when you walked in the room? And were you nervous? <laughs> oh, terrified. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. I literally was laying in the back seat of the van, which had a you know a long seat, right? You know, doubled up, hands over my stomach, feeling like I was going to hurl. I was terrified wow and uh finally get over there and i was dressed uh very conservatively i used to wear ties and shit 
So I'm wearing mm. like loafers, slacks, shirt, and a little tie. <laughs> <laughs> so I go backstage to meet him uh, about 20 minutes before we played, man. No rehearsal, no nothing. That's crazy. And uh, he just looked at me and said, Robin, what you going to wear on stage? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm like, again, like the mm-hmm. last thing you expect. It's not like, so yeah. did you learn those songs, son? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, don't worry, I have some stuff. I, I did some shopping, you know. And uh, I hung around in the room with a few other people, you know, until at a certain point he started looking in the mirror and doing his hair. And he goes, Robin, I'll see you later. So I was dismissed. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, we're on the bandstand playing the first song. And I was in knots with fear. And I played every damn thing I could possibly play in my first guitar solo. Because I think he wants a lot of notes, you know. He's had John Schofield and Mike Stern you know, and both those guys are really noty players, you know, and very fast, harmonically hip. Definitely. So I think this is what I have to do, you know, and I'm just in knots and uh, finished my first guitar solo. And I just kind of look up out of the corner of my eye and he's as close to me as you are, you know, and he just looks at me. He goes, damn. (laughs) That's all he says. So he liked it. In other words. Okay, good. Yeah. Happy about (laughs) it, you know. And um, I just knew you know, I, I can't I can't walk out on a bandstand feeling like this, you know. So the next two nights we played the Beacon Theater again with BB King in New York City, and I just went, I'm going to go out there and act like this is my show. I don't mean you know, <laughs> right? But comfortable <laughs> too much, but yes, like I've been here for years, you know. This is old hat, and I probably went a little over the top, but so what? I had to, it was sink or swim, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I might have been more animated than uh, I would have naturally been, and, and in fact became, because I did relax. But uh, that's, that's how I yeah. beat the fear, because I knew I, I, it, was, it was sink or swim, you know. Any other interesting moments on stage with him that you recall? Oh, yeah, there were a lot. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one. Um, we... Uh, he, he walks... He, he would just walk around the stage. He did not seem to care, you know. Anything about anything. He'd just walk around the stage playing his trumpet, and then he'd go, play something, Robin. <laughs> I love right. that. Play something, Robin. I, I thought that was the hippest expression I ever heard. So anyway, we're playing some kind of a ballad, and he's playing some shit, and he's standing right in front of me just looking at me while he's playing, you know? He's two feet away from me. He's right there. And he goes, he says something, you know? And I'm like, I'm sorry? <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse me? Because I couldn't hear him. It's a band playing. And then he goes... It's from Tosca. So he was playing a melody to me from the opera Tosca. Ah, <laughs> That's cool. what was going on. He wanted you to know. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. It's from Tosca, fool. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what an Things awesome. like that would happen, you know. I mean, um, he would just... Well, it seems like all the great performers kind of make the stage kind of fun, like spontaneous place. Ideally. Yeah. Yeah, if you're... Yeah, I mean that's you. You need to be relaxed up there. You know? Yeah, make it feel like mm-hmm. big house concert, big yeah. living room. Everyone's together. Yes. Now, did you uh, walk away from that gig? Because Garth Weber did it. Did you yeah. uh, kind of introduce him to Miles? Yeah, uh, I I was basically unhappy in the situation. You know, the band was very dis- a group of disparate characters. You know, like it didn't feel like a band. It wasn't like this group of people who hung together and played music together and ate together you know it just never felt like that and um the management did not treat us well you know um we we were definitely treated like second class citizens how so oh you know like 
on a bus with the crew at seven o'clock in the morning to drive nine hours, you know, that and, kind of thing, you know. Right. And not that I faulted Miles at all for, you know, he would fly there, you know, and he'd be picked up and dropped off in limousines and all that shit. And again, no problem for me, you know. Right. Or they, they had us on a tour bus at one time that was just a complete frigging wreck, you know. So just, you know. And that's paying your dues. Been on a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, very bad. So, um, you know, it just, I, I, and I just signed to Warner Brothers. I had a record to do for them. And I'm like, I, I got to go, you know. So I um, was asked to, you know, find some guitar player to replace, you know, myself. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I talked to a, a few people. And an interesting story, and I don't think Scott will mind my telling this story. Maybe you've even heard it. I don't know. I don't know. Scott Henderson, um, uh, and this is 1986, right? So, you know, I, I always thought of Scott as a very jazz-oriented guitar player, you know. I never thought of him in any way as a blues guitar player, you know. He's a very harmonically sophisticated, and he can play anything. But his focus and the way I knew him as a guitar player, you know, was coming right out of the jazz tradition, you know. And uh, so I got him recordings of Garth. I got him recordings of Scott. And um, I'd played him Garth already. And he liked it. And I played him Scott just a, almost, a, I only had a couple more shows left, you know. Scott and I had had the conversation, you know, and he sent me the cassette. And so I'm, I'm in Miles' hotel room and he's listening to it on little headphones, you know, little Walkman, you know. Yep. And I, I said, I don't, and I said, Scott's not, you know, I don't think of him much as a blues player, you know. And he looks at me like I'm nuts. He goes, he's playing him now. <laughs> like that, you know. Okay. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Far be it from me, you know. <laughs> and uh, he had already decided that he was going to hire Garth. But then I got this from Scott. I talked to Scott, you know. And um, he decided yeah. he wanted to work with Scott. So it, tour manager got a hold of Scott. You know, Scott was on it. The day that Scott was supposed to leave to join the group, he still doesn't have his plane ticket. He doesn't know where he's going. His I don't know if his bags were packed, but he was supposed to be leaving this particular day, and he'd just been waiting for, you know, this he, information to he come was ready. to him. Miles had changed his mind. No one had ever told Scott. And Garth was hired to play. Right after that, he got the call from Joe Zawinul. There you go. And, and his and, hero. And Joe was his hero. So it worked out perfectly. That's a, that was a sketchy story for a second. It turned out great. Yes. I've never yeah. talked to Scott about that. I got to talk to him sometime about that. We don't see each yeah. other much. It's so, very rare. Now, you've done something very generous, which is put like an entire set up from the Infinity Hall, which, by the way, I played there two or three times. Awesome building. Uh, it's in a great Connecticut, place. right? Norfolk or whatever? Norfolk, Connecticut. I think that's right. Kind of seems like it's out in the woods almost in a nice way, but it's... it's I know. Yeah. It is out in the woods. Yeah. But fortunately, it's close enough to uh, a community um, to support it. Wonderful building. All yeah, it wooden. is. It's one of the good gigs one of the in good the United gigs. States, yes. Absolutely. And now you have, it seems like you've let, uh, put a whole entire set, filmed it with multiple cameras. Well, I, I wasn't responsible for that. That's PBS. Oh, okay, yeah. PBS um, but you okay does a series there. Oh, sure, yeah. of course. I mean, it was only good for me. Yeah, PBS has a series and... Uh, do you remember the name of that series? I'll put it up on the on our show here. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember and, exactly. Uh, but it's what they fantastic. Call it. It's like an hour set. Yeah, it's it's it. along the lines of Studio Fifty Five or Austin City Limits, yeah, right? Exactly. So it's Infinity Hall, and they have a name for it. And um, yeah, so I was delighted when I was asked if I'd be interested in 
in doing that. No, the sound is impeccable. The mix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you had any role in the guitar mixing of that. Like, Only in talking about it. And I, I asked my um, engineer, who didn't record it, but I said, please talk to them about my tone, you know. Because, yeah, it sounds, again, really stereophonic and three-dimensional. Right on. Got that space in there. I, uh, I never watch or listen to those things because I don't want to know. Right. <laughs> If, if I'm not happy, then I'm going to be really unhappy, you know? So I don't yeah. even want to know. Because if, if, I played the show, you know? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's out there in the world. It's doing what it can, can do for me, you know, career-wise yeah. or whatever. But I don't want to know, you know? Yeah. Do you, you almost seem more outgoing about this record than almost any record I can remember. Maybe I'm just imagining. I'm not, I'm outgoing? Not, I'm not super... You talking about the new album? Yeah, the new album. Into like, the Sun. Mm-hmm. really enthused. I don't know, doing a lot of press, obviously. And uh, maybe oh. I'm imagining it, but it's <laughs> pretty... Uh, not that you weren't outgoing before, but it seems like you're really stoked on this record. Well, their management, you know, yeah. did a lot of... Uh, put a lot of effort into it, you know? It really yeah. speaks for them from that point of view. It's Lisa's like, great. Yeah, I've known her yeah, for a Lisa while. Yeah, Lisa Jenkins is really wonderful. And um, so it's, it's, you know, been a, you know, more to their uh, credit. Right. I certainly always go out and tour, and I do things. But, Absolutely. But again, she's, she's really good at um, getting yeah. things to happen, you know. I didn't make it happen, you know. Right. Well, it's cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I couldn't tell if maybe you were more receptive to... Not that you were reclusive with the press before, but... Oh, no, no. They just yeah. avoided me. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, not guitar... Not completely. Not guitar player. Yeah, the international thing has been, you know, which people don't know about over here in the U.S., you know, has always been very strong for me. And um, anytime I make a record, there's always a lot to do. But in the U.S., it's just a lot harder to get, you know, publications to be interested in, in doing it because they have so much else to do. And, you know... Yeah. People are interested in other things, maybe, than my music, you know? I don't know. I, you're right, though. I hear it all over. I was doing a wedding gig in Cancun once, mm-hmm. and these guys were setting up a giant tent and stage in the sand, literally putting the post in. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. And they got the PA going, and they started playing you. Oh, really? It, it, sounded, it was just so welcome. It was wonderful. Ah, well, thank you. It. You mean uh, it was like they were using it to... Just, you know, DJ, just iPod. Dial up the PA, because yeah. what, what was the record, just, do you know? I think it was Talk to Your Daughter. That's it. Talk but, to uh, Your Daughter is a famous tune, but the it was room the whole, record. Yeah. Oh, okay, there you go. That record has been used by huge rock and roll bands while they're get dialing in the sound for, you know... Uh, I can't remember. Somebody yeah. told me in particular, the band was like... Aerosmith or I mean like some huge band and it was at the um, forum and they yeah. were they were somehow like a, a part of the production team or something and when they arrived the sound engineer was you know dialing in the sound right you know before the band comes out and plays and they were using talk to your daughter people have used yeah. talk to your daughter to to tune <laughs> recording studios yeah. it's really wild I, I asked be- why. I believe it it's true. Yeah. And I asked somebody why, and they said, well, think about the way the record starts. It starts with kick drum. Interesting. Boom, yeah. boom, you know? <laughs> and then there's all this space. You hear the vocal. There's nothing clouding the vocal. There's no other instruments. The bass is playing these little riffy things, you know? Then, bam, something comes. You know, the whole band kicks in. Yeah. So apparently it has something to do with that, just the way the record begins. 
That makes sense. And then the lead guitar and, kicks in. Yeah. And then it's very strong rhythm section, you know. So for rock bands, they need cool. that, you know, something that's driving, you know, the... That makes perfect sense. And that, that was really the, that era was when really separation and mixes really became important. Like, well, just really fully developed. Yeah. Equalizing like late eighties, mm-hmm. early that to me, it hasn't gotten any clearer since then. It's maybe gotten warmer. Mm-hmm. And not, that was when true clarity really seemed yeah. to be hitting. I, I think I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, you also have Warren Haynes on your record. Yeah, Warren. Uh, uh, I met Warren when I was on the road with uh, Phil Lesh. I, I did Phil Lesh and Friends uh, one summer. Oh, cool. 2000. Right. The year was 2000. In the year 2000. <laughs> and uh, it was a summer tour, and I'd never heard of Warren Haynes. And he came out and set in somewhere on the road out there. He was with yeah. Government Mule. I don't know if he was already with the Allman Brothers, too. Probably was, right? 2000? I think so. <clears throat> Definitely right around then. So uh, I was very impressed, especially with his voice, you know? Yeah. And I um, can't remember which came first, but I was, I, I was in, I've been invited to a few things, you know? Like they invited me out to, to sit in with the Allman Brothers when they, they do the Beacon Theater every year for Sweet. two weeks straight. Um, and then Warren invited me to the uh, Warren Haynes Christmas Jam in North Carolina. And uh, we've mm. just kind of developed a, a relationship, and um, cool. I've sat in with him. He's sat in with me, and uh, so it was just a, he was a natural to have on the record, you know. What do you learn from him now that you play with him so much? Doesn't every great guitar player that we play with affect us in any way, some uh, kind of way? I I avoid the effects of other guitar players. I don't listen to or learn from other guitar players. But when you jam with a guy regularly or something, we're all playing the blues. Yeah. It's not regularly anyway. True. Like Mike Landau. <laughs> now that is a there's a yeah. guitar player that I've played with a lot, you know, and still it's he does what he does what he what he does and and i do what i do and what he does i have no idea what he's doing you know i mean he can do so much with a guitar and he's True. so creative and he can just play and play and play amazing i don't learn from mike i'm blown away by mike's playing you know it's like well who do you learn from nowadays well school for me and has been for a long time is you know songwriting you know i don't I have learned from Indian music. Last few years, the thing that I have been influenced by that is instrumental music that moves me, that I can feel some connection with, and I might want to reproduce something like that is Indian music. So that I can learn from, you know. Uh, but I, I, I don't listen to guitar players, man. Well, I mean, yeah, other, other musicians as well, though. I mean, are you yeah. keyboardists or anyone <laughs> at this stage in your life? No. It's songs and it's... You know? And it's a deep form of music like Indian music is what you're saying. Yeah. Like as a yeah. player, the only thing yeah. that I am learning from is Indian music. I'm getting something from that. There's a brilliant guy. I don't have my cell phone here. His name is um, Ram Narayan. But I, I would like to be able to say the name of the record, but I can't. It's on my you know, uh, right. iPhone, you know, iTunes, that kind of cool. thing. So I can't think of the name of the record, but... Uh, Pandit, I believe he's referred to as Pandit, Ram Narayan. And uh, he plays an instrument called the sarangi. And it's like a four-stringed instrument that is bowed. And I think it has a metal fretboard. It's very wide. You know, the fretboard would be like seven, eight inches wide. Four strings running about an inch apart across, Mm -hmm. I think, a metal fretboard. It stands up, you know. 
like an upright base, right? Only it's small and it sits, you know, between his shoulder and his knee and he bows it. And it sounds kind of like a violin, but richer, you know? And this guy is just, he's, he's like a blues player. He really wow. is. Only amazing technician as well. Ram Narayan, love him. There's a little bit of YouTube that you can find. All right. And uh, there's another uh, a flautist that I love, uh, Pandit also. You know, these guys mm. are masters. Um, uh, Hari, Hari Prasad Chosarya, C-H-A-U-S-A-R-I-A. Hari Prasad Chosarya. He's a flautist. Unbelievable improviser. What are you? Yeah, what are you getting from this genre that you aren't finding? Well, it's one scale, you know. This music is primarily one scale, like the blues, you know? Mm -hmm. It's deeply soulful, and it's about sound. It's about nuance, you know? Grace notes, you know, uh, slides, bends, all these things that are very guitar-y. Yeah. Stringed instrument, you know? Right. It's not about harmony, right. other than the fact that it's an original, you know, you'll be playing an original scale. So I learned, I'll, I'll show you something I have learned from that. I can talk about that. Okay, so for those who don't know it, I mean, Indian music is, it's one scale, you know, from that point of view, it's diatonic, it's, there, it does not change keys. Every now and then you'll hear a five chord <laughs> in Indian yeah. music, you know, yeah. which is like, what? But it's primarily um, uh, a single scale and a tremendous amount of improvisation. So I've learned some scales, and this is kind of my favorite so far, which it's like I'm, I'm playing an E minor. And I'm playing So I'm playing an E minor scale with a raised fourth and a major seven. So it's E, F sharp, G, A sharp, B, C sharp, D sharp, E. Like melodic minor with a raised four. Yeah. So when I learn a scale like that, the first thing that I do is find the triads, just like you would in, in a major scale, a minor scale, you know? Right. So it's, That's you know, cool one chord, two chord, three chord, four chord, right? Yeah. With scales like this and on the guitar, very hard to harmonize that scale. I should do it. I have not done it. <laughs> what I do is find the, ma the three, basically you're going to find, you know, three major triads. So in this scale, excuse me, there's an E flat major triad, there's an F sharp major triad, there's a B major triad. Interesting, or is your five chord? So if you play like that B over E, it sounds major. It does not sound minor, right? Which it is. It's right. that kind of... Right. And with so many of these, you know, and maybe it runs through, you know, our scales too, and I just haven't thought about it, but there's almost always a diminished scale, a, a, a diminished arpeggio. Right. There's an F sharp triad. 
it's kind of, it's like it's got, it's got two feet and one foot's in one dimension and the other foot's in the other. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So that's what I like. Like what turns me on is the sound of that note against that chord. That's like if, if I could boil it all down in music, I like the sound of that note against that harmonic platform. That is number one for me. <laughs> is it important for you to always have a keyboard player then? So you have a lush chordal background or is it even if it's, it's just implied with a bass note? It's, it's actually limiting, you know, to have an, another yeah. instrument. But if you want to hear the note against a chord, is it, you saw it's like oh, implied well, I, within the song. Yeah, I mean, basically, you, you know, you, you set mm. up a, a tonal uh, atmosphere. You know, so, yeah. I mean, even like if Indian music... So it's music, in the air, yeah. Yeah, Indian music, they're not playing right. chords. There's no chords. But you hear the minor exactly. third, right. you know, fifth, flatted fifth, major sixth. So it's all there. And are you playing along with that kind of stuff? Just, do you, I don't do you play st- along with it, no. You just kind of study it and then... I learn the scale. I find those triads. I fool around with it, you know. That's basically cool. how I work, you know. I, I, you know and, and that has been, you know, partially a product of laziness because I haven't mm-hmm. had the discipline or the willpower to sit down and learn how to play that thing that i just heard but also it's like i'm more comfortable finding things that i want to play you know and i listen to it and i get the sense of the phrasing and i get the the sense of the rhythm of it it's like okay so rather than try to learn what he did i get what's going on here fundamentally so i ask myself to come up with what it is i'm going to play rather than take it from somebody else. And I'm not saying this is good, bad, or indifferent, but that's just the yep. way I've always worked, you know? Because I'm not excited trying to learn somebody else's thing. But I am, like, I get way into trying to find my own thing to play. So I like right. going with that, my, my own personal energy, my own personal uh, inspiration, you know? Well, I don't know if this is a good place to end. You've certainly uh, been very generous with your time. Sure, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think we're good. (laughs) Really, thank you for coming by. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Pleasure.
Hey, quick story before we go. But first, just a reminder that you got to check out Into the Sun, Robin Ford's new album. In fact, you just got to snag that. I know I did. Into the Sun. Great stuff. This is a song called Rose of Sharon off of that. Okay, quick story. As promised, you know, one time I was interviewing the great John Schofield. This was at Yoshi's. It was like day two of a three-night stand, middle of the afternoon. The club is empty, just me and him on stage getting set up. I'm like, hey, John, how was last night's show? He says, oh, man, it was cool. He says, but you know what? I think I was a little bit nervous, a little bit self-conscious. I'm like, why? He says, well, you see that table right there? And he's pointing at a table that's like really close to the front of the stage. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, sitting there the whole time watching us was Robin Ford. Now, isn't that funny, man? One of the most legendary, greatest guitarists on the planet, John Schofield. Even he feels a little self-conscious with Robin Ford. Why is that? I think it's because we all know that Robin has such high standards for everything. And of course, we would all feel nervous, too, if John Schofield was sitting at a table watching us. Why do I bring up this story? Of course, because I love John Schofield, but also because... I freely admit I was a little nervous during this interview. Funny, weird little things were happening that I take the blame for. For one, I never leave my ringer on my cell phone on, except for I turn it on just in case Robin couldn't get through the front door of the studio or something. I wanted to answer it. Well, of course, I forgot to turn it off. I edited this out, but the phone goes off. It lights up with one big word, mom. My mom's calling me in the middle of the interview. Yes, I called her back. Robin's like, you better call your mom back. And of course I did. But yeah, I don't know. I I take the blame for that Fender Super giving up the ghost. I think it was my kind of nervous energy. But I hope you enjoyed that anyway. Robin Ford just has that way of uh, pushing us all to the highest level. And how generous of him to give us so much of his time. Special thanks to Vertex for making this episode happen. VertexEffects.com Also want to thank Guitar Player Magazine again. Thanks to Pauline France, great publicist who kind of hooked this up. She reintroduced me to Lisa Jenkins, Robin's manager, which was great. We made this happen. See you on the Facebook page. No guitar is safe. Thanks to Zoom, who have provided the H6 recorder that I use on most of these episodes, although today, and here's a huge thank you. We have to thank Blue Suede Studios and Shane Solo. All right. Well, see you next time. Remember, keep it alive till you're 105. <laughs>